If you have your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 9. Uh, Ryan has been taking us through the Ten Commandments this spring. It's been a wonderful study. but We're going to take a break from there, and we're going to look at uh, one of Jesus' parables, because this is what we've been looking at at RUF. So you're going to get a little taste of what we've been studying together. And all semester we have been looking at how Jesus gave us stories, stories about the kingdom. And these stories reveal the truth about the kingdom to us. And what we found over and over again is that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom, that it's totally radical, totally different than the kingdom of man. Its attitudes, actions, and values are totally opposite. And that makes sense, right? If your king came to his victory parade on a donkey, then it only makes sense that everything about his kingdom would be different. So this morning, the title of the sermon is uh, Upside Down Salvation, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Upside Down Salvation. And we're going to look at that from uh, Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 9. Please hear the Word of God. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This ends the reading of God's Word. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, we do come to you right now, to your Word, with hearts that are weighed down by the values, the attitudes, and the actions of this world. We confess that those, uh, those attitudes and actions live in our own hearts and in our own lives. And we pray that as we come to your word, you, put, you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, our mind to understand, and open our hearts to see the beautiful, surprising, wonderful, upside-down salvation that you have given us. Father, we cannot do that without your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give it to us now. You would help us to see that your word is a light into our path. It is your lamp. Please show us the glory of your salvation right now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm on a constant quest uh, to see different stories and examples of how grace surprises us. And one of the best ones I've seen so far, uh, recently, has come from my son, Tucker. He is constantly surprised by grace. And uh, I just want to tell you one quick story about that. Uh, recently, somebody called me, and they said, Shane, uh, we have a Suburban. It is in good condition. It is a good vehicle. We would like to give it to you and your family. Do you have need of it? And I thought about it for like one second, and I said, yes. 
we would, we would be very humbled and thankful that you would give us that suburban. And this person said, then the suburban, suburban is yours. So uh, one day we drove to Tulsa as a family. We were driving to pick up the suburban. And as we were on the way to the house, I said, guys, we're going to go to this house. We're going to go to this place. And this person is going to give us a vehicle. And Tucker said, hmm, are we going to pay him for the vehicle? And I said, no. We're not. It's actually just a gift. You can kind of see like the confused look on his face. And he goes, oh, okay. So we're going to leave our vehicle here. He's going to take our vehicle, and we're going to get his vehicle. And I said, no, we're not. Mommy's going to drive this vehicle home. We're going to drive the Suburban home. The Suburban is a gift. And he got this really confused look on his face again. And he said, you mean he's just going to give it to us? And I said, yeah, he's just going to give it to us. He said, I mean, we don't have to do anything for it. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to give him anything for it. No, son. This is a gift. And you could see the wheels turning in his head as he was surprised and confused and confounded by the grace of this person. Have you ever been surprised by the grace of the kingdom like that? Have you ever looked at the salvation that God has given you or the salvation that God has given us, the salvation that God has proclaimed in Jesus, and been totally shocked and just dumbfounded and surprised by the grace that's found in it? Well, I think the passage that we're going to look at this morning of the parable and the Pharisee and of the Pharisee and the tax collector is a parable that ought to surprise us by the grace of God. Because what it does is it shows the upside-down nature of the salvation that we have in the kingdom of God. It shows the upside-down nature of the attitudes and the actions. And I think the more we let it set in, the more we're going to realize that the kingdom of God is totally upside-down compared to the kingdom of this world. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for us because we get to experience God's grace. and That changes our relationship with God and it changes our relationship with others, and it allows our relationships with Him and with other people to grow and to flourish and to live. It's an incredible salvation that we have, and it's incredible the thing that we see in this passage, and we see it in three ways. We see it through an upside-down prayer, an upside-down righteousness, and an upside-down destiny. So those are the th three things we're going to look at this morning. An upside-down prayer, an upside-down righteousness, and an upside-down destiny. The first thing you see in the passage is an upside-down prayer. In the passage, Jesus gives this parable and describes two different men going to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Now, look at the prayers of these two people. Look at the prayer of the, of the Pharisee. He says, God. So he starts out right. He's talking to God, right? I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he starts out by talking to God, but then he only talks about himself. And he compares himself to all of these other different types of people, and he thanks God that he's not like them. So he's talking to God, but all he's doing is he's talking about himself. And he's comparing himself not to God, but to all these other people. What does he say after that? He says, I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. Here he's, he's describing his spiritual performance. In the Old Testament, you were only required to do one fast a year. He did two fasts a week. So he did over uh, almost a hundred times more the fast that he was supposed to do. He tithed off of everything. You know, we know that the Pharisees would have tied off of every little thing that they have, everything from their garden. They would have pinched a tenth of it off, and they would have brought it to the altar. They would have brought it to the temple. So he's saying, look at me. I'm super religious. I'm better than all these people. I'm better than your law. I've done everything that you want me to do and more. This prayer is a self-centered prayer. It's a self-righteous prayer. It's a performance-based prayer. One of the early church fathers, Basil, says it best. He says he's, this guy's not talking to God, but he's curved back in on himself. His prayer is curved back in onto himself. The nature of sin is to curve us into ourselves. To get us thinking about ourselves rather than God. To get us thinking about ourselves rather than other people. So that's the first prayer. Then we see the second prayer by the Pharisee, by the tax collector. I'm sorry, yeah, by the tax collector. So you just need to know that on the front end, a praying tax collector was an oxymoron. This would be the modern day equivalent of us talking about a praying drug dealer or a praying pimp. Tax collectors used people, they manipulated people, they extorted people for money. They were bad people. So to say that a tax collector was praying and that a tax collector was going to the temple is utterly surprising and profound just in itself. Then look at his prayer. What does he say? God, he starts out the same way the Pharisee does. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Instead of talking about himself, instead of focusing on himself, instead of presenting his own spiritual resume and saying, look at how good I am, he asked God to be merciful to him. He asked God for mercy. Then, he calls himself a sinner. Now, in the Greek, there's an article in front of this, and it could be translated, the sinner. The sinner. He's not just saying, I'm a bad sinner. He's not just saying, I'm, I'm kind of bad compared to all these other people. He's saying, I'm the worst sinner. I'm the chief of sinners, as Paul said. He knows that if he were to come and present his spiritual resume at the temple, that he would have absolutely nothing. And so we have two different prayers all together. We have the Pharisee who comes and prays a self-righteous prayer, a self-centered prayer based on performance, and we have a tax collector that comes that prays a God-centered prayer for mercy based on mercy and not on his own performance at all. And which one does Jesus commend? He says that the tax collector went away justified. So he commends the tax collector's prayer. Now the first thing this shows us is just the upside-down nature of prayer altogether. When we come to our Heavenly Father in prayer, we do not come out of our own worthiness and our own performance. We come out of our neediness. We come out of a spirit and a posture that I am a sinner saved by God's grace. I have nothing to offer. 
My spiritual resume is horrible. God, I need you to be merciful to me. We come the way a little child comes. We come empty-handed. Right after this passage, I don't think it's any coincidence that Luke includes a story where people are bringing infants to Jesus so he can touch them. And what do the disciples do? He rebukes them. He says, don't bring me those infants. Don't bring me those children. Don't bring me those kids who, who poop and vomit and wake up in the middle of the night and can't do anything. No. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus rebukes the disciples for not letting them bring the infants. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is made of such of these. That the children of God are needy, they're broken, they're empty-handed, they come to me with nothing, and I'll receive them. That's what we do in prayer. We come to God as children who have nothing to offer, who are broken and sinful and needy. We come not out of our own worthiness, but out of our neediness. And that's how we pray. I think we have to ask ourselves, when we come to God in prayer, do we come with that upside-down nature? Do we come out of our neediness, or do we come out of our worthiness? And the way you know if you're coming out of your own worthiness is, is if you won't come because you've done something wrong, or you won't come because you know you failed. If you're looking at your performance and you're saying, I can't go pray, I can't talk to my Heavenly Father because I've done this, then you're looking at your own performance and not out of your neediness. But if you come to God and you say, I'm, I'm like a little child, I've got nothing to offer, then you're coming out of your neediness. And that's the type of prayer that your Heavenly Father loves to hear. I love it when Frances comes to me out of her neediness. She can't talk. She can't do anything, really, <laughs> except make lots of messes. She giggles and laughs and smiles, and that's pretty good. Right? But she doesn't do anything. She comes to me empty-handed, and she does this. And she says, ah, 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 da, da. And that's a prayer that I love to answer. And that's a prayer that your Heavenly Father loves to answer. So that's the first thing we see. But the second thing we see is even more radical and even more surprising. And that's that this type of prayer, this type of needy prayer, actually brings an upside-down righteousness. It brings upside-down righteousness. So this word that Jesus used, justified, it's a technical term. It's a legal term that means to be showed in the right or acquitted. So to justify, justified and righteous are very similar words, okay? Justify is a verb, righteous is a noun. So to justify something means to make it right, all right? So let's think about a legal setting, and let's just use a hypothetical situation like Shane getting parking tickets, all right? Let's say that in some hypothetical world where Shane was a really bad parker at the Oklahoma State campus, that he would get parking tickets, okay? I may have two of those parking tickets right now. On two separate occasions, I went to campus, and I really wanted to park in the right spot. But apparently I didn't. I parked in spots that were not for staff, and so I got tickets. And those tickets counted against my record with Oklahoma State. And I have a debt, or had a debt, I paid the tickets, but I had a debt because of those tickets. Because I violated that law, I broke it. Now, to be justified in context of those tickets would mean that I would have to pay the tickets. And then when I paid the tickets, then I would be right with the Oklahoma State Parking Police. Okay? 
Well, spiritually speaking, what the Bible teaches is that every time we sin, every time we break God's law, that we're racking up those tickets. That we're accumulating spiritual debt. And for us to, uh, to be right with God, that spiritual debt has to be paid for. It has to be wiped off the book. Somebody's got to come in, either us or somebody else, and they've got to pay those tickets. And once those tickets are paid, then we're made right with God. Well, Jesus says that the tax collector is the one who's justified. Now, this would have been totally shocking and surprising to everybody who heard it, and it should shock and surprise us because of three things. One, he's saying that both the tax collector and the Pharisee are guilty. He's saying both of them have broken God's law. Now, for the tax collector, this wouldn't be a shock because tax collectors were bad people. They were the irreligious people. They were the drug dealers and the pimps of their days, right? So everybody would look at them and go, yeah, you're clearly sinful. But nobody would look at the Pharisee and say, you're bad. You've broken God's law. Why? Because they were the religious people. They were the good people. They were the people who were fasting twice a week. They were the people who were tithing off of everything they had. They were the people who were doing all these outward displays of good works. They were the religious people. They were the people who were looking at the Ten Commandments, and they were going, yeah, I pretty much kept all the Ten Commandments. I mean, maybe I didn't keep that one that one time when I told a little white lie. But other than that, I'm basically a pretty good person. And Jesus is saying, no. He's saying that the, ta- the Pharisee is guilty. We had one of our students, I mean, just shocked. Just shocked at Bible study a couple weeks ago. Wonderful Christian student, uh, very religious, went to, a, went to a private Christian school, has heard the Bible teached and preached her entire life, grew up in the church. They were talking about the Ten Commandments, and she said, you know, you know the Ten Commandments really aren't that hard to keep. And Sherry was kind of like, Wait a second. You mean to say that you've never really broken the Ten Commandments? Well, you know, I mean, I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. And she was like, you know that Jesus kind of redefined the Ten Commandments, and he said that if you've ever hated your brother in your heart, then you've committed murder. And she said, really? He said that? And she said, yeah. And you know he redefined lust to mean that if you've looked at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery. And she said, don't tell me. If I've, if I've lusted, I've committed adultery. And Cheryl was like, yeah. And you could just see the utter shock in her face to realize that she hadn't been as good as she thought she'd been. That she was guilty just like the Pharisee. We have to ask ourselves, are we the Pharisee in the story? Are we the one who's looking at our own record, our own performance, our own keeping of the law of the Ten Commandments, and going, I'm guilty? I've broken the law? I've sinned? I've got parking tickets? Of course Shane has parking tickets. Look at him. But me? And then Jesus says something utterly shocking and profound. Not only does he say they're both guilty, he says that the irreligious guy, the tax collector, He is the one who is justified. He's forgiven despite his sins. And then he says that the religious guy is not justified despite his good deeds. 
how in the world could Jesus say this? How could he say that the religious guy, the good guy, is not justified? He says this because the Pharisee trusted in himself. When he came to the temple, what did he bring as his sacrifice? He brought his own good deeds. What does Isaiah tell us about the good deeds of Israel? He said, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. They're dirty, they're bloody, they're contaminated, they're defiled. Why were his righteous deeds defiled? Because he did them all for the wrong reason. As Basil said, his prayer was curved back in on himself. If you do the right things for the wrong reasons, it totally invalidates those things. If you do religious things for selfish reasons, then they're filthy rags. And when you come to the altar, when you come into worship, you cannot be made right with God based on those filthy rags. You can't do it. What are you bringing to the altar and hoping Jesus will justify you based on? It won't work. You cannot bring your filthy rags to the altar and be justified and be forgiven. How does Jesus justify the tax collector? What does the tax collector bring? The tax collector doesn't bring anything. What the tax collector does is he prays for mercy, right? He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, you could take this phrase, have mercy on me, okay? And you could translate it, using the Greek, literally meaning, atone for me. I want to be atoned for, right? And this idea of atonement, right, would have pointed everybody to the temple and it would have pointed everybody to the temple sacrifices of made in the Old Testament that God prescribed. In Leviticus 16, it describes the temple sacrifice for the Day of Atonement to bring forgiveness for sins. You guys remember what the, uh, the Day of Atonement called for? It called for the high priest to come in and bring a bull and a ram for a sin offering and a burnt offering for himself. And it called for him to bring two rams as sin offerings for the people. And what would happen is he would cast lots and one of those, uh, one of those rams would be chosen to be the sacrifice. And the other one of those rams would be chosen to be the scapegoat. And so what he would do is he would, he would make his sacrifices so that he would go into the temple, and then he would take the, the sacrifice, the, the, the ram that was chosen for the sacrifice, and he would slip, he would first pray, put his hands on the goat, and pray that the people's sins would be imputed to that goat. Then he would sacrifice it, and he would take that blood, and he would sprinkle that blood on what? The mercy seat. And that blood and that sacrifice was made to pay for the sins of the people. To bring them, as, to make them righteous with God. And then they would take the other goat. And in a very symbolic manner again, he would take his hands and he would pray over the, over the goat and he would confess the sins of the people and then he would send that goat out into the wilderness to be freed. And it's a great picture, one, of the sacrifice that was made, the sacrifice that had to be made to pay for sin. 
And it's a great picture of God's people being able to go free despite the penalty of their sin. That God's wrath would no longer fall on them. That God's punishment for sin would no longer be, they would no longer have to take it. So there would be both forgiveness and cleansing and there would be this turning away of wrath, of judgment, and there would be freedom. And when the tax collector comes and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, he's saying, have mercy on me. Because I'm a sinner, there's no way I could pay for my own sins. I need somebody else to pay for them. But what is he missing? He's missing a goat. He's missing an offering. But Jesus justified him anyways. How could Jesus justify a guy who brought nothing to the altar and only pled for God's mercy? Jesus could do that because he was the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Because he knew that he was going to go to the cross and he was going to die for the sins of his people. He was going to die to pay for all of their bad deeds and all of their good deeds that they did for the wrong reasons. Palm Sunday. We're celebrating right now, right? We're celebrating Jesus being the Lamb going to the temple to be slaughtered and sacrificed to pay for the sins of the tax collectors, to pay for the sins of the Shane Hatfields and the Sherry Hatfields and the Mike Siemens and the Thomas Carlsons and the Tucker Hatfields and the Sam Shidlers. That's what he went to do. He went to pay for those sins. So that when we, like the tax collector, come and say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner, God the Father can go, you're forgiven. Your debt has been paid. Oh, that I would love to hear the parking police of Oklahoma State go, you are forgiven, your debt has been paid. Yet, that's what your Heavenly Father says to you, not based on your performance, but based on Jesus' performance. That's the upside-down righteousness we have in the kingdom. We are right with God, not based on our own performance, but based on Jesus' performance. And so we come here this morning to worship, not bringing our own resumes, not bringing our own checklists, not bringing our own spiritual good deeds or bad deeds. We come bringing Jesus. And you will never be able to bring Jesus and your own deeds at the same time. You have got to lay your own deeds down and bring Jesus to the altar and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when you do that, you get the upside-down righteousness of the kingdom. Now, how do you know if you're being self-righteous? How do you know if you're being like the Pharisee? How do you know if you're bringing something else to the altar? Watch how you treat other people. In verse 9, Jesus says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So they're the self-righteous ones. They're the Pharisees, right? And treated others with contempt. So the way they viewed their relationship with God had a direct impact on the way they treated other people. And the way we view our relationship with God has a direct impact on the way we treat other people. My pastor and friend and mentor in Tulsa named Ricky Jones likes to say that you will treat God, you will treat other people the way you believe God has treated you. You will treat other people the way you believe God has treated you. And if you believe that God has treated you 
uh, good or bad based on your own performance, then you're going to treat everyone else around you good or bad based on their performance. Notice the Pharisee has a checklist, right? He comes to God with his checklist and he says, see, I did all the good deeds. Like me, God. If you believe that God treats you good or bad based on that checklist, then guess what you're going to do to your neighbor? You're going to go to them with that checklist. And you're going to hand it to them. And if they keep the checklist, great. If they don't keep the checklist, ah, I can't be friends with you. You're going to take your checklist to your family members, and you're going to say, here's my checklist. This is how I'm made right with God. This is how you ought to be made right with God. And if they don't do it, you're going to get really upset and angry and mad, and you're not going to be around them. And you're going to do it with your coworkers, your siblings, your friends, your family, everybody around you. If you believe that God treats you good or bad based on your own performance, then you're going to treat everybody around you good or bad based on their performance too. If you want to know what your checklist is, ask yourself, what makes me really angry? What, what, what does, do other people do that makes me really angry? My checklist is having control. And being in control and having things perfectly laid out, perfectly planned, perfectly taken care of. And whenever the, the wonderful, sweet woman that I live with does not check those boxes on the checklist, it makes me really angry. And it's not her fault, it's mine. Recently, I got mad because I couldn't find my coffee grounds. Ryan knows that if you're a pastor and you're trying to write a sermon, you have to have your coffee. And so I sat down to write my sermon and I didn't have my coffee. And I started looking for my coffee grounds and I couldn't find my coffee grounds. And then as I couldn't find my coffee grounds, I thought, I bet she put those coffee grounds someplace else. <laughs> and so I sat there and I stewed over these coffee grounds all morning long. And then Sherry got home and I said, sweetie, because you've always got to preface it by sweetie, right? Sweetie, do you know where my coffee grounds are? No, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened to your coffee grounds. Sure you don't. Later on in the day, I was looking for something else, and I opened the freezer, and I looked down the freezer, and guess what I found? My coffee grounds. And it dawned on me, I was the one who put the coffee grounds into the freezer. But here's what's, here's what's going on in my heart. I judge my relationship with my Heavenly Father based on my ability to control things, my ability to organize things, my ability to look perfect and act perfect. And I handed that checklist to my wife. And when, he, when she couldn't check those boxes, or didn't perceive to check those boxes, I got angry with her. What does your spouse do that makes you really angry? That's not a sin. What do your friends or your coworkers do that make you really angry? That's where your checklist is. That's the thing that you're bringing to God to justify you. And Jesus says, that you're justified based on his performance and not your own. He says, don't bring the checklist in. That checklist is not how you relate to your Heavenly Father, and that's not how you relate to other people, and that's not what's going to bring you life and joy and happiness. What is, is the upside-down righteousness of Christ. And in the end, that's going to give you an eternal destiny that's far greater and far more wonderful than you could have ever wished or hoped for. And I don't have nearly enough time to unpack this. But what Jesus basically says at the end of this is that this upside-down prayer and this upside-down righteousness brings an upside-down destiny. If you look in the context here of chapters 17 and 18 in Luke, 
Jesus really does have sort of a future perspective in mind. Okay, So in Luke 17, he begins to talk about the coming of the kingdom. The second coming, his second coming, right? And then he's trying to encourage his disciples to pray until he comes back the second time. So at the beginning of Luke 18, he tells the parable of the persistent widow. And the parable of the persistent widow ends with a really funny question. It says, nevertheless, will the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's a funny question. Will he find faith on earth? when he comes back. And then, after that, he tells this parable. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What is he showing? He is showing in this parable true justifying faith in Christ. True saving faith. The the kind of faith that when he comes back, you're going to be declared not guilty on the day of judgment. And he summarizes all that in verse 14 where he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a radical upside-down judgment that's going to shock and surprise people. The people that their entire lives have been building up their spiritual resume, they've been pressing everybody else down, they've been holding everybody else in contempt, they've been trying to earn their way to the Heavenly Father, On that day, Jesus is going to to humble them. He's going to say, all your righteous deeds were filthy rags. Depart from me, I never knew you. But to all who come to, to God the Father and say, have mercy on me, a sinner in Christ Jesus, God the Father is going to exalt them. He's going to lift them up. And even now in this life, every one of us that comes to our Heavenly Father, like I said earlier, and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, you're going to be exalted into heaven with Jesus. You're going to have the smiling face of your Heavenly Father. You're going to experience the love of Christ in a totally new, radical, profound, life-changing way. You're going to have the righteousness of Christ. And what will your destiny look like? Um, Let me give you a story to illustrate it. In 1993, a man named O'Shea Israel was at a party. He was 16 years old. He was partying. He got into a fight, and during that fight, he shot somebody, and he killed him. He went to trial, and at that trial, he was convicted. He was found guilty. He went to prison. Well, the mother of the boy that he shot was at the trial, and at the trial, she said that he forget, she forgave him. Years later, she was teaching a Sunday school class through the Lord's Prayer on forgiveness. And when she, got to the, when she got to the forgiveness part as she's teaching the Sunday school lesson, she had to ask herself, have I really forgiven this person who killed my son? And she came to the conclusion that no, she hadn't. So she visited him in prison. Her name was Mary Johnson. Mary Johnson visited O'Shea Israel in prison. She wanted to sit down and talk to the man who killed her son. So she sat down with him. She talked to him. She talked about forgiveness. And at the end, as they began to to separate, she hugged him. And as he walked out, she thought to herself, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I just did. I just hugged the person that killed my son. But she said she felt herself forgive him. And after that, she began to meet with Israel on a regular basis. She began to go to prison and meet with him. They developed a friendship. 
She became like a mother to him, and he became like a son. Several years later, when he'd paid his sentence, he got to come out, and Mary Johnson threw a party for him. She threw a party for the very person that had killed her son. And O'Shea Israel said this. He said that when he got to the party, it was the weirdest thing. People who had only known him as a killer were coming up and hugging him. Does that surprise you? That's the surprising grace of the gospel. And that's the surprising grace that we're going to experience when we get to heaven. Is that even though we have been good for the wrong reasons and we've been bad, when we get to heaven, we are going to know that we're forgiven and we're going to walk into a place where nobody knows us as lawbreakers and rule breakers and pornographers and adulterers and murderers. They're only going to know us as people who've been forgiven and we are going to come into the embrace of our Heavenly Father. We're going to experience a hug. A hug. That's what your eternal destiny is in Christ. It's a hug. And that's a hug that you can experience right now if you come to your Heavenly Father and you say, have mercy on me, a sinner. So let's go to Him right now and pray that prayer. Father in Heaven, Your salvation is so backwards and so upside down, we can't even get our mind around it. We can only taste little bits and pieces of it, and we can only have snapshots of it. Father, but we know that we've broken your law. We know that in this room sit idolaters, murderers, adulterers, liars, coveters. Father, we know that compared to you, we are not holy. And our only hope for salvation is to come to you and ask for mercy. We come to you with Jesus in our hands. He is our offering. He is our goat. He is our sacrifice, Father. We pray that because of his performance, of his life, death, and resurrection, Father, that you would show us your fatherly embrace. We pray that we would sense a hug. I pray, Father, for those who are here right now, who think that they are too far gone, that you would give them a hug. I pray for those here who know that they're self-righteous, who, who know that their prayers have been bent inward on themselves, who know that they're looking to their own deeds to justify them. I pray that you would show them your smiling face and that they would sense a hug. And I pray that they would know that their eternal destiny is not to walk into heaven and be known as a killer but to walk into heaven and be given a hug and see the smiling face of their Heavenly Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.